kinds of axioms do we want in our geometry? How do you tell a good axiom from a bad one? Should an axiom be intuitively obvious? Should it be empirical? Should it be physically testable? Should it be logically self-justifying? Or are they in fact logically arbitrary? The time has come to take a stand. As we've been reading Euclid backwards, we have seen how the Pythagorean theorem can be reduced to a theorem on the areas of parallelograms, how this in turn can be reduced to triangle congruence. Uh, now we have to prove triangle congruence somehow. If two triangles have the same side angle side, then they're the same triangle. How do you prove such a thing? We can't keep playing this game of reducing every theorem to a simpler one. We're running out of simpler. Maybe this theorem is as simple as it gets. It's rock bottom. How do you decide, in any case, what's simpler than what? You know, it's becoming more philosophy than mathematics to answer these questions. The theorem, side-angle-side congruence, is Euclid's proposition 4. Right, so according to Euclid, it's a proposition, apparently, not an axiom. So apparently he has reduced this proposition to something. What then? Let's read the proof. Okay, we have two triangles, and they have certain measurements in common two sides and the two sides of one triangle are equal to two sides of the other and the angle between the two sides are equal in both triangles. Euclid says that he can prove that the other measurements are equal as well for these two triangles. That is to say the remaining sides and the remaining angles, those are all equal. So they're the same triangle basically. And here's how Euclid says you can prove this. Take one of the triangles and put it on top of the other. We know they have the side-angle side in common, so those parts line up perfectly. These three attributes are then enough to lock the entire triangle, the rest of the triangle, into a unique shape. That is the idea. And suppose that was not the case. Suppose the two triangles were different. Now, since they have side-angle side in common, they lined up at least on those parts, at least on the this kind of V-shape of the side-angle side part, Really, this locks into position uh, two of the sides and all three of the vertices of the triangle. Certainly, at least that, because of the V part are the same to both. So there's no way uh, one of the triangles can stick out beyond the other in terms of the two sides or in terms of any one uh, vertex. So the only way the triangles could be not equal would be if the third side somehow uh, missed. So this would mean that the endpoints of the third sides were the same for both triangles, but the line joining them would be different. Impossible, says Euclid. You can't have multiple lines connecting the same two points. As Euclid puts it, two straight lines cannot enclose a space. That is to say, you can draw a straight line from, from A to B and then uh, another straight line from A to B. You can't do that in such a way that the two lines kind of miss each other and have some space in between them. Right? And uh, given that that's impossible, the third sides of the triangle must line up on top of each other. So the two triangles are identical or congruent. That's the proof of the proposition that we needed. So once again, the point of the proof is not to convince us that the theorem is true, but to reveal how its truth can be reduced to more basic truths. Euclid has now taken this as far as he can. We're all the way down to the axioms, so things that cannot be broken down any further.
the proof of the triangle congruence theorem rests most prominently on uh, two axioms. One, as we saw, is that two lines cannot enclose a space, which is equivalent to saying that for any two points, there is only one straight line between them. This corresponds to Euclid postulate one, you know, which states that, uh, as an axiomatic principle, that we can draw a straight line from any point to any point. It's apparently understood that, that this line is uh, unique, that there's only one way to do this. So that's an axiom. Okay, you can't reduce that any further. You just have to accept it somehow. There was another axiom involved as well in our proof for the triangle congruence theorem. Namely, the assumption that we could put one triangle uh, on top of the other. It corresponds to Euclid's common notion four. Things coinciding with one another are equal to one another. It's basically a definition of equality. What does it mean for two things to be equal? Put one on top of the other. If neither sticks out beyond the other, then they're equal. That's what equal means. In fancier words, you could say equality means alignment under superposition. So that's another axiom that Euclid states at the beginning of his work, which you cannot prove from more basic principles. So what should we make of these two axioms? Since we cannot prove them from other things, they must be justified some other way. What way would that be? Euclid apparently thought these two principles were especially suited to be axioms. He could have done it differently. He could have chosen other axioms. For instance, the triangle congruence theorem itself could have been taken as an axiom. That's what Hilbert later did in a modern, very authoritative axiomatization of geometry. From the point of view of modern mathematics, it makes a lot of sense to take triangle congruence the principle as axiomatic. From a logical point of view, that's perhaps the best approach. Modern logicians, they don't like Euclid's proof one bit. Bertrand Russell calls it logically worthless. But what is good mathematics? It depends on the, your philosophy. You must first decide what kind of thing mathematical knowledge is, or, or what it should be. Only after you've made that philosophical decision do you have any basis for judging whether Euclid's approach is better or worse than that of others. Euclid's proof is logically worthless. Okay, if you want mathematics to be logic, then you know you, you can have points to criticize. But should we want that? You know, logically worthless is not the same as worthless from any other point of view. So, what was Euclid's desire? Uh, vision of what mathematical knowledge is, and therefore how it, the axioms should be justified. Euclid's choice of superposition as an axiomatic principle is quite interesting in this regard, isn't it? It seems almost physical, almost empirical. In the proof of the triangle congruence theorem, you're really literally physically picking up one of the triangles and placing it on top of the other triangle, it seems. It seems to assume that triangles are physical objects, like cardboard cutouts or something. And the idea that equality means alignment under superposition, it also has a kind of physical feel to it. The thing fits on top of the thing. It's something you can test practically in the real world. So the modern authors I mentioned, like Hilbert and Russell, they do not approve of these connotations, this physicality. They don't like it one bit that mathematics is, as it were, contaminated by empirical considerations. They want mathematics to be pure reason. They don't want it to depend on uh, sense perception or physical experience. And, but... Euclid's proof of superposition suggests that he was maybe less dogmatic uh, about this. 
it could be interpreted as a sign that he was open to the idea of geometry as ultimately physical, that he didn't mind uh, physically grounded foundations for geometry. Of course, the geometry of Euclid is still very theoretical. Obviously, to Euclid, you can't justify things like the Pythagorean theorem just by measuring things. So the way you would verify a physical law by making a bunch of measurements in a lab. Of course, geometry is not like that, uh, as anybody who has opened Euclid's elements uh, can see. But the fact remains that uh, the axioms cannot be justified by the axiomatic deductive process itself. What axioms are the right axioms or the best axioms? That is a question that cannot be answered by purely mathematical means. Some philosophical assumptions will be necessary, uh, necessarily involved in trying to answer that question. I figured I can use this as a bridge to discuss some Plato and Aristotle. I'm trying to emphasize how these things go together, you know, mathematics and philosophy. So reading Euclid it leads naturally to these philosophical questions. We reduce the Pythagorean theorem down to superposition and uniqueness of lines, ultimately, and we faced the question, why stop there? Why these principles and not others? You know, what kinds of foundations should geometrical knowledge be built upon? So this is the right time to read philosophy, these questions burning fresh in our minds. Mathematics itself does not answer these questions. As Aristotle says in the posterior analytics, for the principles, a geometer as geometer should not supply arguments. So there's a kind of division of labor, you know, justifying the axioms, that's not the business of the geometers as geometer, as, uh, as Aristotle says. But of course, Aristotle didn't mean by this that you should have mathematicians over there and philosophers over here, and there's no point for them to talk to each other. A better way to read it, I think, is that geometers as geometers cannot justify their axioms, and therefore any geometer needs to be a philosopher as well. Right? Aristotle discussed uh, the axiomatic deductive method at length. In his treatise, The Posterior Analytics, here's a quote which, that sums up his view. Demonstrative understanding must proceed from items that are true and primitive and immediate and more familiar than and prior to and explanatory of the conclusions. Well, that's quite a list of demands, isn't it? Axioms like those of geometry, they should have all of those characteristics according to Aristotle. So obviously this means that the axiomatic deductive method is a whole lot more than just logical deductions from arbitrary axioms. Aristotle says precisely this. I quote him here. There can be a deduction even if these conditions are not met, but there cannot be a demonstration, for it will not bring about understanding. So Aristotle then places very significant restrictions on what could be a legitimate axiom of geometry? It must be primitive, immediate, more familiar than prior to and explanatory of the theorems. So the axioms need to be self-evident. In other words, it seems, this seems to be more or less what Aristotle means by immediate, I, I believe. And axioms must be irreducible, not in turn derivable from some other principles. That seems to be the meaning of Aristotle's demand that they should be primitive, uh, and so on. So it's interesting when Aristotle elaborates further uh, on what he means by some of these terms, because he ultimately commits himself to the perhaps controversial stance, namely that axioms are ultimately grounded in physical experience. Here's what Aristotle says. I call prior 
and more familiar in relation to us items which are nearer perception. So apparently immediate perception must be the ultimate foundations of demonstrative understanding then. And not, not pure thought, but sensory perception, physical experience. So the axioms are uh, generalized, idealized facts of experience. As Aristotle says, we must get to know the primitives, to say the axiom, by induction. For this is the way in which perception instills universals. So, for instance, for, for any two points, there's a unique line connecting them. This is a fact of experience, but of course this is generalized by induction, as Aristotle says. That is to say, we have observed it in many examples. So, for this particular pair of points, there's a unique line. For that particular pair of points over there, there's a unique line, and so on. We have seen that through experience. Those are facts of, of perception, direct sensory experience. And then... As Aristotle says, perception instills universals by induction. That is to say, we generalize from these examples to the general principle that this uniqueness of, of line connecting two points will work for any two points, not just the numerous examples that we have experienced in our own, uh, personally witnessed with our own eyes, but that it will always be like that. So that's the generalization uh, uh, step, the induction step. So Aristotle thinks the axioms of geometry ultimately come from concrete experience. So the credibility of the axioms, the, the certainty of the axioms, it derives from the, the authority or status of immediate sensory experience. So this fits pretty well with the principles to which Euclid reduced everything. It is known through experience that there's a unique line from any point to any point. For instance, by pulling a string between two points, you can get a very direct sensory feeling for the existence and uniqueness of that line. Uh, the principle of superposition, of putting one triangle on top of the other, this can likewise be seen as an idealized version of very immediate and basic physical experience. Not everyone agreed, of course. Plato is the opposite of Aristotle. He has complete contempt for the physical world. He loves mathematics precisely because it is something purer and higher than physical experience. So let me quote uh, Proclus expressing this view. Proclus is a follower of Plato. He, he's keen to argue that mathematics stems from the soul, not from sense experience. He addresses the Aristotelian view. He sums it up like this. Should we admit that the objects of mathematics are derived from sense objects, either by abstraction, as it's commonly said, or by collection from particulars to one common definition? So that's what Aristotle had argued. And Proclus answers, no. We should not accept that, the Aristotelian view, and here's why. Geometry cannot be based on physical experience, Proclus says, because the unchangeable, stable, and incontrovertible character of the propositions of mathematics shows that it is superior to the kinds of things that move about in matter. How can we get the exactness of our precise and irrefutable concepts from things that are not precise? We must therefore posit the soul as the generator of mathematical forms and ideas, not physical reality. Plato, indeed, was quite obsessed with this idea that pure thought is the highest and most noble thing in human life. In the Timaeus, he elaborates on this idea in a rather amusing and poetic way. To philosophize is the purpose of life. Human anatomy is an appendix to the soul and the mind. As uh, Plato says, the entire body was created as its vehicle, that is to say, as the vehicle of the mind. 
the body exists only to make philosophizing possible, so to speak. For example, consider the intestines of the human digestive system. They are very long and winding, yes? Like uh, you roll up an extension cord when putting it in a, in a drawer. It looks like that in, in, our, in our insides, in our stomachs, doesn't it? Food that doesn't go in a straight line from the mouth and comes out the other end. Instead, the body passes it through the intestines, go back and forth, back and forth in very long distance. Right? Plato, he thinks he knows why. And here's how he explains it. The intestines are wound round in coils to prevent the nourishment from passing through so quickly that the body would of necessity require fresh nourishment just as quickly, thereby rendering it insatiable. Such gluttony would make our whole race incapable of philosophy and the arts and incapable of heeding the most divine part within us. So that's how Plato puts it, this idea that the human body is a means to an end. The only thing worth anything is philosophy. Eating doesn't have any value in itself. The only purpose of eating is to put off the annoying needs of the body for a while so as to give us time to think. Plato has a similar theory regarding eyesight. To Aristotle, the senses were a source of knowledge. The foundation of geometry rested on sensory experience. Of course, Plato disagrees. The purpose of eyesight is just like that of the intestines. It's just a physical crutch whose ultimate goal is to support pure philosophy. Here's how Plato puts it. Our ability to see the periods of day and night, of months and years, of equinoxes and solstices, has led to the invention of number and has given us the idea of time and opened the path to inquiry into the nature of the universe. These pursuits have given us philosophy, a gift from the gods to the mortal race, whose value neither has been nor ever will be surpassed. I am quite prepared to declare that this is the supreme good our eyesight offers us. That's Plato's uh, claim, theory. So eyesight is not a good in itself, it is merely a stepping stone toward philosophy. It's a kind of almost a necessary evil, you know, like the intestines. It would be better if we didn't have to eat, but given that we live in this feeble physical world, the best we can do is make the food take a long time to go through us so that we have as much time as possible to think in between meals. And in the same way, ideally, we wouldn't need eyesight either. Ideally, we would do pure philosophy, which transcends the feeble physical reality. Unfortunately, we were stuck in physical form. We have imperfect minds. Eyesight leads to astronomy, which leads to mathematics and therefore to philosophy. And then we're in business. You know, it would have been better if we could have skipped the preliminary steps and gone straight to philosophy. Then eyesight would have been redundant. Eyesight isn't actually necessary for true philosophy. We only need it because of our imperfections. We need it as a push to get us started on the path that will lead to philosophy. But once we're up and running with philosophy, we can pretty much poke our eyes out because they're not needed anymore. So in this passage, Plato was talking about astronomy, but he could just as well have said the same for geometry. This is how we must think of the role of the geometrical diagram, sensory perception in Plato's philosophy of mathematics. True mathematics is independent of all that physical stuff, according to Plato. Geometry is not based on physical or sensory experience with moving figures, drawing lines, and all that stuff like Aristotle claimed. We only need that as a crutch because our minds and bodies are feeble and imperfect. Once we have reached the philosophical level of doing geometry, we can kick away the ladder. It doesn't serve any purpose anymore, this, uh, the, the ladder of uh, sensory uh, support.
for thought. Here's another colorful image that Plato has for this. He's explaining why birds exist. Birds descended from simple-minded men, men who studied the heaven, heavenly bodies, but in their naivete believed that the most reliable proofs concerning them could be based on visual observation. And conversely, land animals, they came from men who had no tincture of philosophy and had made no study of the heavens whatsoever. As a consequence, they carried their forelimbs and their heads dragging toward the ground. So the philosophizing human is the perfect balance between these two poles. It's not focused on worldly gratification like the beasts. It's also not making the mistakes of trying to understand things by looking. The birds thought the best way to understand the stars was to get as close as possible and get a good look. Humans know better. We understand that the best way to understand the stars is by thinking, by philosophizing, not by looking, not using the senses. And we can say the same thing about geometry. Too much looking and not enough thinking, that would be the cardinal sin that we must avoid, you know, not only in astronomy but also in geometry. It also fits very well with another work by Plato, the Mino. In this work, Plato shows how an ordinary, uneducated slave boy can be led to recognize geometrical truths, such as the special case of the Pythagorean theorem. Socrates, he draws a simple diagram, he asks some simple questions, step by step, this uneducated boy fills in the reasoning and arrives at the theorem. So, Plato interprets this as a sort of awakening on the part of this boy. Learning is a form of recollection, he claims. That is to say, the boy did not reach the geometric insight through instruction or through empirical investigation dependent on the senses. Rather, the boy realized that he knew something that he didn't know that he knew. His inner philosopher was awakened. An external input, like the diagram drawn in the sand, was a trigger for this awakening, but the, the knowledge had really been there all along. The senses merely stimulate the reawakening of this knowledge. It's not an actual basis for that knowledge. And this story uh, sums up the role of the senses in geometry, you know, in Plato's philosophy overall. So what does this mean for the axioms of Euclid? What kinds of things do the axioms of geometry need to be to conform to Plato's vision of geometry as a kind of pure philosophy, a work purely of the mind, I think it comes down to a sort of an innateness theory uh, of axioms, right? The axioms of geometry need to be pre-programmed into our minds. And this fits with the idea that learning is recollection, that mathematics is merely making the mind conscious of things that it didn't know that it knew. And there's no external source of this knowledge, according to Plato. The mind just already knows it within itself. It just needs to be kind of brought into consciousness. So axioms, then, should be intuitive, instinctive. You should read them and you should go, of course. They should feel like the most natural, the most undoubtable things in the world. That seems to be what Plato's theory suggests. Proclus, of course, agrees. He's, he's Plato's mouthpiece, as ever. And here's what he says about axioms. Axioms take for granted things that are immediately evident to our knowledge and easily grasped by our untaught understanding. Axioms must always be superior to the consequences in being simpler, indemonstrable, and evident in themselves. 
It's almost exactly what uh, what Aristotle said, as I quoted previously. So Plato and Aristotle, they arrive at the same views of axioms despite very different outlooks. They disagree on the ultimate origin and foundation of knowledge, like whether it comes from sensory experience in the external world or whether it comes purely from within our own philosophical uh, faculties. This, uh, indeed, opposition between Plato and Aristotle is captured in the iconic fresco, the Skull of Athens, by uh, Raphael. Plato is pointing to the sky, Aristotle is pointing straight ahead. Basically, they are pointing to where they think knowledge comes from. Aristotle thinks the source of knowledge is the world before our noses. Plato thinks knowledge resides in the higher realm, above the physical. Despite, though, this orthogonal disagreement, Plato and Aristotle agree on the properties that axioms must have. Axioms need to be the simplest and most obvious first truths. Do you agree with them? No, you don't. You don't think that axioms need to be obvious and intuitive. Either that, or else you think that Newtonian physics is a hoax. I'm putting this in a provocative way here, but there's a point here. Hear me out. Newtonian physics is an example of an axiomatic theory where the axioms are completely non-intuitive. In fact, they are strongly counterintuitive. The basic axioms of Newtonian physics is the law of universal gravitation. Any rock is pulling on any other rock, even if they are separated by thousands of miles of empty space. That's just sheer witchcraft. In fact, you yourself is in direct bond with all the universe through this mysterious force. It's like something straight out of science fiction or New Age spirituality. Every last one of the thousand stars in the night sky are actively and directly exerting a force on you at any given moment. That's crazier than any uh, occult uh, astrology you've ever heard. And yet, that's Newtonian physics, the most successful scientific theory of all time. In fact, uh, this example of Newtonian physics corresponds precisely to the kind of blind spot that we should have seen coming in our discussion of axiomatic philosophy. On the one hand, we said that axioms should be obvious, simple truths. On the other hand, we said that axioms are what you're left with after you start with theorems like Pythagorean theorem and then reduce, reduce, reduce all the way down. They are two different ideals, not necessarily compatible. The idea of reducing complex theorems into smaller ones does not entail that the axioms you end up with need to be obvious truths. Axioms is just whatever results uh, as the outcome of this process of reduction to of many theorems to, to a few core principles. That process, the reductive process, could be seen as basically agnostic as far as the nature of the axioms are concerned. We can follow the react, this reductive process uh, you know, where it leads, just like... A chemist cannot decide in advance what kinds of elements he wants the periodic table to contain, so also the mathematician reducing geometry to his building blocks has to keep an open mind, follow the reductive process wherever it leads, and you end up with, well, whatever the result is, there could be anything you cannot decide in advance that the thing you end up with needs to be intuitive or, or, or what have you. In any case, that is how Newton interpreted the geometrical method. He's very clear about this is very explicit about the reductive process being the same in physics as in geometry. Geometry starts with things like the Pythagorean theorem. Physics starts with things like 
the speed of the planets and so on. The phenomena, as Euclid calls them, the observational facts about the universe. From the phenomena, you reason backwards to the underlying causes or unifying principles. That's what you do in geometry when you show how many theorems can be reduced to a few key principles like Euclid does. And the same thing is what you should do in physics when you show that lots of astronomical data can be derived from a few laws like the law of gravity and so on. Newton is adamant that these two things are the same. As in mathematics, so in natural philosophy. That's his phrase. Natural philosophy means physics. So the two are the same in terms of methodology. That's how Newton justifies his radical physics by saying that this is actually nothing but what the geometrists have been doing all along. So to make the shoe fit, Newton has to sacrifice the idea that axioms are obvious truths, as Aristotle and Plato had claimed. Which This interpretation is not crazy. You can say, well, you could actually read Euclid that way. You could say, Euclid doesn't care whether the axioms are obvious or not. He just follows the reductive process where it leads. He's agnostic. He's open-minded about what kinds of axioms will be the outcome of this process. He started with the Pythagorean theorem. He went back from it, took it wherever it went. Of course, that clashes with uh, what Plato and Aristotle said. But they are philosophers. You know, it doesn't really matter what they think, so to speak. The important thing is what the mathematicians thought. And their texts are ambiguous. Ambiguous enough to allow for the possibility of Newton's interpretation. So Newton interprets Euclid a certain way in order to justify his own methodology. Newton's interpretation is uh, hardly very likely as a historical hypothesis. is also not provably wrong. He's a clever guy, Newton. You know, he knows his physics is crazy and occult. So he massages an interpretation of the Euclidean tradition to legitimate it. And he's intelligent enough to pull that off. I don't think Newton was right, you know, the way he interpreted Euclid. Nevertheless, his perspective is very illuminating, very cleverly thought out. For one thing, it's striking that Euclid's geometry was so authoritative still at this time, age of Newton, which is 2,000 years after Euclid's Elements was written, that even then, cutting-edge modern science was justified on the grounds that his method was the same as that of Euclid. You know, there was no more solid pillar of respectability than Euclid to anchor your theory to. Even then, 2,000 years after the Elements was written, that's still the best uh, uh, claim to legitimacy that you could uh, appeal to. Euclid City, Alexandria, had burned any number of times at this point. It has seen several new religions come and go. But the impact of the geometrical method was above these transient circumstances. Its authority, its impact lived and was still felt as a, a cornerstone to Newton. But even for simply for understanding Greek philosophy of geometry in itself, the Newtonian example is also useful for that, not only for this kind of uh, sweeping cultural uh, impact, but even if we think only about what, what the questions about axioms that we raised, the Newtonian example really gives us a lot of food for thought. The, the Greek philosophers, they seem to have been blissfully unaware of the possibility of such a theory as the one that Newton presents, where 
the reductive process leads to non-obvious axioms. They seem to have just assumed that these two things would always go hand in hand, that yes, on the one hand you reduce, on the other hand you start from the obvious. Those two things are somehow in harmony, that seems to be just taken for granted. In fact, uh, Aristotle Posterior Analytics has a phrase that sums up precisely this idea. And here's what Aristotle says. I call the same things principles and primitives. So uh, if you, you know, what Aristotle means by this is that the principles are the logical starting points of a deductive system and uh, primitives are the immediately given truths grounded in perception. So Aristotle thinks you might as well regard these as synonyms, apparently. I call the same things principles and primitives. So he does not seriously consider the possibility of a viable scientific theory in which these two concepts would not align. But Newtonian physics is such a theory. It has principles that are not primitive, so to speak. That is to say, it has axioms obtained by from reducing the phenomena down to the smallest parts, but those axioms are not obvious and intuitive and are not known by direct experience. That's the law of gravity that has those properties. So the Greeks, they could have their cake and eat it too. They could have the idea of reasoning backwards, reducing geometry core principles, and at the same time maintain that those core principles should also conform to various predetermined philosophical requirements as well, like being obvious. So Newtonian physics shows that you can't always have it both ways. At a certain point you have to pick sides. You have to decide which of the two you'd rather sacrifice. Newton picked the brave side, I think, the path less traveled. He sacrificed the idea that axioms should be intuitive. Huge sacrifice, almost unthinkable. It's like a military general sacrificing 90% of his troops in this audacious maneuver, you know. Few people would have dared to even contemplate a move like that. But it worked. Even though it was a huge sacrifice, it got Newton into such a strong position that he won the war anyway, as it were. Uh, you know, his theory of physics, obviously, it's a, a pinnacle of uh, credibility, as influential as Euclid's elements, almost. in his, uh, So, many people... At the time, though, Newton's time, when he first published his work, they thought Newton was crazy for making this sacrifice. He got a lot of pushback for the, precisely this. Reduction to non-obvious axioms is such a radical idea. It goes against everything Plato and Aristotle said. But, in a way, Newton's idea is already containing Euclid. It's the idea of reading Euclid backwards. Newton's perspective... It may not have been that of Euclid exactly, but it's useful to keep in mind this example of Newtonian physics to highlight what's at stake in this tension between the backwards and forwards directions of reading Euclid. Right, so I hope I have provoked reflection uh, with this uh, striking example. Thank you.